This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Now, City Council, of course, met yesterday. They're going through the budget process and getting the lowdown on numbers and uh, and the efficacy, I guess, of some of the programs that are going on. And they got a rather troubling update about transit here in the city of Hamilton. Despite improvements to Hamilton's transit, ridership for the HSR has declined by 435,000 trips last year. This comes after the city has actually made a lot of enhancements and a lot of investments into transit. So why isn't it working? Let's bring Chad Collins into the conversation. He is the city councilor for Ward 5, of course, in the uh, east end of the city. Chad, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Were you surprised by these numbers? Yeah, they are shocking in light of the investments that you referenced earlier. Uh, The 10-year transit plan that we started in 2015 was about uh, first fixing the system. So we had some scheduling issues. We had overcrowded buses on some routes. And so the plan was to, over a two-year period, make um, investments into not just new buses, but uh, hiring extra staff to to ride those buses and staff to fix those buses. And, of course, we had corresponding um, fare increases to help uh, pay for those expenditures. And the eight uh, following years of the plan are about increasing the service to the community, uh, putting additional buses on the road not to fix problems but to enhance service so to see that, um, you know, that we have made substantial investments and some of the, I think, words that were used last week during the staff's presentation was historic. Um, you know, we put, I, I believe the number that was referenced, we put 25 new buses on the road in one year, which is, a, I, I think it was characterized as the largest expansion in one year in the history of the HSR. So we know how far back the HSR goes. And to, to hear those kinds of investments that have been made, and then, as you, you mentioned, to see the corresponding reduction in ridership is uh, disheartening, to say the least. Yeah, the one stat I see here, the the city added 75,771 new hours of bus service. Mm-hmm. So and, mm-hmm. and so here's the thing. Chad, the time you've been on council now, you, you've seen varying levels of support for public transit on, on different mm-hmm. councils that you've been on. But it seems as if, uh, to your credit, uh, that this council... Uh, everybody seems to be on the same page. I think everybody now understands the importance of public transit, uh, and you have to, as you just mentioned, you've made the commitment to it. And and you not just walking the walk, you're talking the talk and doing everything that you're supposed, supposed to do here. This has got to be rather frustrating for you. It is, and, and when you look across the whole um, transit uh, continuum as it relates to DARTs, as it relates to HSR, as it relates, relates to the taxi script program that we have, I mean, in, in all categories we've made improvements and not just on the operating side, so, you know, you, you referenced how many extra hours were on the road, but, but we've also, as you know, um, we've made historic capital improvements. Um, you, you know, we can talk about the LRT in terms of what we're getting from the province and the city's contributions there. Despite what anyone's position is on it, it's still um, a, a billion-dollar project that will be invested into a tra- our transit system. Um, we'll, we have... Two rounds of federal funding that we're dealing with right now, and, and you and I were on uh, on your show a couple of months ago talking about the city's requirement mm-hmm. to uh, to pay for their half of the the Canada um, infrastructure program, and it was thirty six million dollars over a period of um, uh, ten years. Uh, and there's a second round coming, and so there'll be a corresponding ask of the municipality on that front as well. And then, of course. Um, you know, we're, we're making regular improvements through the HSR's annual operating budget. And so the 10-year strategy is an investment in itself. And we're making bigger investments into the DART system. And we're seeing some corresponding improvements there with the million-dollar savings and extra ridership um, with, the, with that investment. So in all areas, we're making not just operating investments, but we're making capital investments as well. And so to see these numbers come in, uh, HSR was, I think, at its peak uh, in 2014, was 22,250,000 trips. And I think the most recent numbers, as you suggested, um, you know, we're below or we're in the range of 21,600,000. And so that's that's a fairly big drop in just uh, over three calendar years. And, and it, you know, it, it's not just in Hamilton. It's across the board in Canada and in North America. Many transit systems are seeing... Um, ridership reductions and many transit systems like Toronto and elsewhere have made corresponding investments in those same years and and they haven't seen the, the fruit of those investments. Some of it may be chalked up to fare increases so th- that could be a factor. Mind you they've been you know fairly nominal and this, the information we received last last week was that in fact we still have some of the lowest 
transit fares in the province. Um, the second issue is low gas prices, and that certainly could be affecting how many people are using public transit. What about uh, Uber? Any way to read as to how much of an impact? We know it's had an impact on the taxi industry, surely, but but you would think that uh, that if there's an increased usage of Uber, that that's going to have some impact on public transit, too. It may. It, de- it definitely may. There could be a, a, a corresponding, uh, there could be a correlation between those two. There's no doubt about it. And so I get, we're left guessing, really, Bill. Um, you know, we could chalk it up to one or all three of those things or other external factors that we haven't talked about. Uh, but the fact is the numbers are down at a time when we're making historic investments in the system. So there has been discussions. There was a, a request last week. If we push the pause button on the enhancements, if we push the pause button on the, the proposed fare increase this year, uh, which is scheduled to be 10%, 10 cents, sorry, um, you know, w- what impact will that have? This year we're scheduled, again, to make uh, um, uh, other investments in the HSR. We're putting five buses on the road with 20 new employees and so that's the 217 ask, in, in addition to all the capital works that we'll be undertaking and really under the gun from the feds to get their projects uh, completed in time by, I think it's early 218, or we lose their um, we lose their contribution. So there's a lot going on at the HSR, certainly a lot going on at DARTS. And um, as I said, very disheartening to see those investments being made at the local level and not seeing the corresponding ridership numbers. In the past, I mean, we heard a lot of criticism about the bus system, about the transit system here in Hamilton, and it was probably justified to, uh, to a great extent because because uh, there was some some common things that we heard. Well, it's not reliable. Uh, they they don't they're not always on time. Uh, there aren't enough buses out there. It takes too long to get from point A to point B, and and you've just outlined in in great detail the commitment the council has made to this. And and uh, there's a pretty strong argument to be made at this stage, Chad, that you've addressed all of those problems. Uh, and we, so you would expect that yeah. when, once you've done that, that people would say, oh, okay, I'll take transit now. Is, is it that they're not aware of all these changes? Is, is it maybe a lack of information? Well, I think the complaints are down. So certainly I think yeah. our customers are seeing the, the investments that are being made. Two issues you raised, and those were the two issues that we, we um, were, were at the center of our first two years of investment, and that is schedule adherence. So lots of complaints in the past that the bus isn't on time. And the other issue is overcrowding. So we had circumstances, especially in my area from Eastgate to McMaster, where we had so many people wanting to use the bus that the buses were overcrowded and we had pass-bys. And that is a situation where the bus pulls up to the stop, too many people are on board, and the driver just keeps on going. And so that is very frustrating for riders. And so our investments over the last two years have been to get those additional buses on the road, hire additional additional, um, drivers, and to deal with those two glaring issues that have been, as you said, very historical the last 10, 20, 30 years, and that is schedule adherence and uh, overcrowding. So those issues, as per the update last week, seem to be fixed. And now we're at the stage where we're growing transit. We're growing the system. We're putting more buses on the road. We're making it more convenient. We may be introducing transit to new areas of the city to uh, accommodate some of the growth areas and to try to bump those numbers up. So we're, we're past the deficiencies now. We're, we're gravitating into the area of trying to make the system a better system and, and trying to grow the numbers at the same time. Um, of course, you know, in addition to the new buses that we have on the road, we, we have additional amenities for people. So we have we recently opened the Mohawk College Transit Terminal, as you know. Um, we have more natural gas buses on the road now. So I think 33% of our fleet is, uh, is green and we're saving in, on diesel costs there. So there's all kinds of good things that are happening with transit. Apart from the investments we're making, we're seeing new amenities all across the city. And again, it's a head-scratcher as to how we've ended up in a situation, like other municipalities, where we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people not using the bus uh, compared to prior years. So you mentioned numbers, and, and the financial commitment the city made here is is, is laudable. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm as frustrated as you because I thought we'd see increased ridership because of this. Is there going to be a, a discussion now about maybe maybe there's too much of a commitment to transit? I know that people are just going to bristle as soon as I bring that up, but mm-hmm. uh, let's face it. I mean, you're in a cash crunch right now with the city, as, as just about every other city is right now, and there is probably an argument to be made here that, uh, well, you know what, maybe maybe this, that's just not going to happen, and maybe you're spending too much of the of, of your, your budget on this, and it's just not going to come to fruition. I, I don't necessarily want to see that discussion happen, yeah. but I can see how some councillors might be leaning that way. 
I think, and I again, I, not speaking for all my colleagues, but from the, the discussions that I've heard around the table, it seems like there may be an appetite to push the pause button on further enhancements. I don't see anyone around the table suggesting that we start peeling back some of those enhancements that have been made in the past. Uh, this year, we've got a lot of issues on the, on our plate for HSR. Uh, first is their budget right now is 4.1% increase. And as you know, our directive to our staff is one8 So they're you know they're they're almost uh, they're over double as to what we had anticipated um, for all departments. So there's some issues there that we have to deal with. We have high overtime numbers in the HSR. That's an issue across the organization, but HSR kind of sticks out among all the departments that we're looking at. We have still have very high absenteeism in the HSR. The numbers that were reported to us last week, I think we're around the 15% range, so that's very high. And our managerial staff is looking at. Um, putting some focus and, and attention on that issue to reduce it and, and bring it in line with some of the other departments in the city. And so those are those are issues that are kind of um, waiting for us in the wings in addition to the the enhancements that we're looking at. So I, I don't see, Bill, anyone suggesting that we start taking buses off the road or we start reducing uh, timelines, but there could be some discussion about, you know, if fare increases are contributing to lower ridership, do we put the push the pause button on the 10 cent um, increase that's proposed for this year do we do we not put the extra buses on the road because now we've we're not passing along the fare increase and those two things have usually gone hand in hand whenever we've we've increased fares we've tried to put that money back into the system to provide additional amenities for people so so you may see something over the next month or two where council says you know let's let's push the pause button let's let's try to figure out you know, why we're in the situation we're in after making these historic investments and, and try to come to maybe a revised plan over the next seven to eight years as to how we're going to deal with transit, understanding that we still have a lot of capital improvements on the horizon uh, from the province and the federal government. Well, exactly. but And, and that's wonderful. And that's that's the, those are the stories that are making the news now. And mm-hmm. and that's what, but it's the operational cost. And, and you've been on this case for quite some time, especially you just talk about the overtime case. This is mm-hmm. this is not a new problem this year. You've hired 50 new employees for the HSR and you've mm-hmm. still got an overtime problem. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And, and that's concerning. The, the overtime, it seems like in all areas, um, is up. And, and what's concerning for HSR um, with these historic investments, we've had three years of budget variances over a million dollars. So that doesn't help us at, at year end when we're closing our books, and we're, we're you know we're heading into the next budget cycle. Uh, through the years fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, we've had three consecutive years of a uh, million dollars over budget. I think a good portion of that would be uh, related to overtime. And so you know traditionally. You know, we've made the case in some areas of the organization. If they're understaffed, they have to they have to have their their existing staff um, work extra hours. That certainly can't be said in HSR because we've made historic um, investments. Yeah, exactly. And with those investments, we've hired new employees, so there certainly isn't a shortage of uh, of employees in the HSR. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot more discussion that needs to occur, Bill, as it relates to fixing some historical problems that we've had related to budget and overtime. Um, but again, uh, all of that is in the context of where do we go in 217? Because this is a year where uh, we were going to start to enhance the service. People in certain areas of the city would start to see buses on a more regular basis, and uh, we were hoping to see some extra ridership from that. And, uh, and in light of the, the numbers that we're looking at from past years, I, I think there may be some hesit- hesitancy on council to go ahead with what's been proposed or um, to go ahead with any enhancement in, in light of the situation. Well, and there was a lot of talk about the Blast Network and, the, you know, about mm-hmm. enhancing service in every other place right now. I, 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 are you skeptical about actually going down that road now? Excuse the pun. Yeah, and a surprise, certainly, announcement from the province. Uh, we still don't know, you know, what's forthcoming from them. It seems like these these projects change on a on a month to month basis, and so uh, we're kind of left in the dark, waiting for the premier to make the announcements on, uh, announcement on the A line, and to definitively say what's going to occur on the LRT and the spur line on James Street North. Um, you know, our our ten year transit strategy, apart from whatever investments are made from the province, are starting to get into the blast network. It's you know the B line's essentially been taken care of now with the invest with the announcement from the province, and uh, in our own investments. I mean, the B line is. Is probably the best ridership 
in the city when it comes to uh, numbers and recovery of fees through right through uh, fares. Uh, we're now looking at the L, the A, the S, and the T line, and that that was essentially uh, going to be addressed through years uh, three to ten in the transit plan. Again, if we're not increasing fares and we're not going to pass on um, more through the budget process for the HSR, we may see you know um, uh, a delay uh, with those investments on, on for the rest of the blast network. It's just um, again until we figure this thing out, it, it's it's hard to pour money into something where you're not seeing a, re- uh, a reasonable return on your investment. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, speaking of council, saddened to hear about the uh, sudden passing of former city councillor and uh, local businessman Marvin Kaplan yesterday. Joining us to talk about Marvin and his life, his career in politics, and uh, the impact that he had is uh, former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany, who of course served with Marvin, uh, both as a councillor in the new city of Hamilton back after amalgamation and certainly as a mayor just after that too. Larry, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Well, my pleasure, Bill, and what a sad subject this morning. Well, let's uh, let's play word association. You've known Marvin for a long, long time, as I did. Uh, he was, uh, I, I know these are, the stuff we're going to talk about now, Larry, I'm going to right off the bat say, like, this is going to sound an awful like we're just throwing cliches at each other, but it's not a cliche if it fits. And he, he was a larger-than-life individual in many ways, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. He, uh, he was uh, gregarious. Um, he had uh, um, a great heart, uh, passionate about uh, a, a number of subjects, and uh, certainly passionate about uh, his adopted uh, home, Hamilton, uh, and uh, had opinions that he gladly shared with anybody who would listen, <laughs> and most people who he didn't even want to listen. Uh, he was front and center with that. I, I first met Marvin when he was still in the clothier business, Marvin Kaplan, the gentleman's apparel, of course, was down in the old Terminal Towers building. And uh, he was a, a constant caller to the radio station here uh, oftentimes because he was a guy who was, as you mentioned, transplanted, came here uh, as, as a clothier and, and opened his own business and, and fell in love with the city. Uh, but he was very opinionated about what needed to be done. And we got to put, uh, I guess, this in context, Larry. I mean, downtown was not a happy place back in those days, and that's where he had his business. And he had some he had some pretty strong ideas about what the city and what city council needed to do to try to to rejuvenate that area. Absolutely, and uh, first and foremost, uh, he he was a, a marketing person. Uh, he had um, a sense of uh, what needed to be done in order <clears throat> to put the best possible face on whatever was happening. And of course, he had his business uh, downtown, as you say. Uh, and the first time I met him as well, um, he was involved politically, and I really didn't know him. It was at a community function, uh, and uh, it was a, a, a dinner of some sort, I think, for Fest Italia in the very early days, and he was a sponsor of that organization. He saw me, came up to me, um, grabbed me by the lapels, but not in, a, not in an aggressive way. He grabbed to, to feel the texture of the suit I was wearing, and he said, nice suit. Harry Rosen? I said, no, tip-top tailors. And he said, come and see me. I'll, buy, I'll, get, I'll sell you a better suit. <laughs> and, and he was always looking out for uh, the promotion, of course, of his business, but of the city as well and, and the downtown. And so uh, I think that defined him uh, uh, until the moment of his death, sadly, uh, this weekend. In fact, I, I can tell you, I, I was speaking to him just uh, a couple of weeks ago by phone, and, you know, we talked about having lunch um, and uh, and uh, he was still involved in the community. He was chair. I don't know if people know this, uh, but he was telling me he was chair of the uh, Social Planning and Research Council, uh, a great uh, advocacy group for for those who uh, aren't as blessed as, as most in this community. Well, that's why, you know, to go back to his entry into politics, uh, it, it was no surprise to me, uh, simply because I saw him with his advocacy for downtown issues when he was a downtown businessman. Uh, but he, it wasn't just about the business end of things. He had a very, as you say, keen business sense and a very keen sense of promotion, self-promotion for that matter. But he had a great interest in social service issues about poverty and, 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 and trying to do something about that in this community, which is 
and and he spoke about those even as a, as he was still in the in the clothing business and and was quite outspoken about some of the things that that needed to be done about homelessness and 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 fair wages and things of this nature. So uh, when when Terry Cook, who was the Ward One councillor, decided to run as regional chair, that was obviously an opening. Uh, along to, with Mary Kiss, because we had two city councillors in each ward back in those days, and I wasn't at all surprised to see Marvin Kaplan run for city council and, and ultimately, of course, be elected. But he was a he was a force in those areas, Larry, as as his time on city council. He was a strong advocate. Always sat on the we had public health and social service committee, uh, and he was uh, he was uh, always talking about those issues and and probably. We uh, acted to a certain extent as the conscience of city council when it came to an awful lot of those issues. He and Ted McBeacon on regional council uh, worked very diligently to try to bring those issues to the fore. Well, absolutely. And in fact, I was going to mention his great advocacy for public health. He uh, absolutely saw the uh, importance and the need to advocate uh, for um, uh, people's well-being and the role that public health had in maintaining a community health, and uh, took uh, every opportunity that he could to, to, to advocate for that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he shied away from other topics as well. I certainly remember uh, all of the uh, all of the public health uh, comments that he would make, but he would also challenge. He was a little fearless. I remember one particular budget meeting when we were in the amalgamated city, and uh, we had the police chief of the day come and make a presentation. And if you recall, Bill, in those days, um, police budgets, unlike now where everything is scrutinized, and, uh, and I think rightly so, including the police budget. But in those days, it was almost, uh, you know, the, the deal was done. Uh, the, the, the police services board would present the budget. And it was almost rubber stamped uh, at, the, uh, at the council level uh, in the municipality. Uh, Marvin, I remember on this particular occasion, had the audacity to actually ask some questions about the police budget and some of the expenses there, uh, to, to the great chagrin, I might add, of the then police chief, um, who uh, took some exception that, that questions were being asked. But Marvin stood his ground and pursued that line of questioning. And I looked at him and I thought, well, you know what, I support this budget. And, and I had my reasons at the time. I, I don't remember what they were right now. But I admire the fact that at least he asked the questions. And, you know, counselors, and we're seeing examples of that even today, are criticized for sometimes uh, asking questions about what we perceive to be holy cows. Well, that was not a holy cow uh, for, for Marvin Kaplan. And he, you know, exercised his duty as a counselor to probe and question before voting. And I always admired that side of him as well. But there was also the fun-loving side to Marvin. Uh, and one of the things that I recall, and Bill, you were on council, but nobody knew about this. It was just a joke, uh, or at least a, uh, uh, a, a a little scheme that Marvin and I had going together. Uh, he loved words. He loved debate. He loved uh, language. He loved language, and this was the this was the issue. We had decided. We just struck a pact, a, a pact between he and I. We had decided that we would challenge each other by giving each other difficult, arcane sort of words that nobody uses in everyday language. And the challenge was, could we use that word that we gave each other appropriately in whatever the debate of the moment was? And we did that. We carried this on for several weeks. And I think, I think, uh, I think we, we bet a bottle of wine or something uh, over who would best the other in using these words in debate and not having it sound as if somehow... They were they were forced. They had to fit the debate of the day, and we had a great time, just the two of us. Nobody knew about it. And then he told Rick Hughes, who's now with CBC Radio. Yeah. And Rick came to me, I remember, and he said, "Why didn't you tell us? We would have written about this." And we thought, "No, this was between us." But we had a great time. Nobody knew about it, but we chuckled about it for months after that. Of course, each of us claimed that we bested the other. Yeah, I, I remember one incident in particular, and I believe the word that you used was parsimonious, and uh, that which uh, got a, a huge laugh out of Marvin as soon as you used it. So clearly, that was the word of the day, and, and everybody else was looking around like, "What's what's so funny about that?" But uh, obviously, putting it in context like that, he had a great sense of humor. He loved to, to he was serious on serious issues, but uh, but a, a great sense of humor and, and 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 great interaction with an awful lot of people in the community as well. And and you know what he. 
he had a knack for for understanding issues when maybe it wasn't popular to to be the champion for those. Uh, and we talked about some of the social service issues, but he did more than talk about it, though, Larry. He, you know, he 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 walked the walk too. I mean, he he would go out on these all night, uh, uh, you know, city buses and and you know where they were picking homeless people up and giving them blankets and helping them. And he he actually did that sort of thing. He was a, a strong advocate for those programs. Uh, and and the sort of guy that actually wanted to find out about that and and say hey, look at what can we do about this and then be that advocate for those choices and uh, it's uh, it's it was a laudable goal and I, I learned a lot about social service issues from from Marvin and uh, our offices were side by side when I was first on council and. Uh, uh, the walls were very thin, so I heard an awful lot about some of his conversations. Uh, he he was a, a rather unique individual and, and that loved oratory. Uh, some say he liked to hear himself talk, and uh, he used to go on and on, but I'm hardly one to talk about that and criticize. But it's, <laughs> or, or me. I think all politicians, uh, well, well, with a few exceptions, we've talked about, of course, uh, Murray Ferguson in the past, but, but uh, with few exceptions, politicians... Uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, rightly accused of saying too much and thinking too little. You know, the other element to this, too, is, uh, is like you say, he served on council, uh, was was defeated in 2003. Brian McCaddy uh, won the seat that particular year. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, like so many other people that are dedicated to this community, that wasn't the end of his public service. As you just mentioned, he still sat on a number of volunteer committees and still was a very strong advocate for a number of issues in the city. Absolutely, and, and uh, as I said, uh, the Social Planning and Research Council, which is a, a great advocate for a number of issues around uh, um, homelessness and uh, uh, affordability and so on, uh, he was the uh, he is uh, or was I guess now the the chair of that particular uh, group of volunteer position, and it just uh, illustrates that uh, you know it wasn't about politics in terms of wanting to do the right thing, but but a great sense of social justice, and, and he took on those causes and actually uh, talked about them when he was politically active and championed them uh, after after he left uh, he left politics. And, of course, uh, he was involved in the business community even to this day, uh, um, uh, working in real estate uh, and, uh, and lately with Robin X. Uh, and, um, and uh, of course, his, his wife, Judy, uh, is uh, very active in the business community, and our condolences certainly go out to her and the family. And I don't know whether people know this, but he had uh, he has a number of children. I think one of them living in England, if I remember correctly, or at least was uh, when I last spoke to him about that. But one of his kids, uh, Ben Kaplan, is an internationally known Canadian singer. I don't know yep. if people realize that Ben is, is Marvin and Judy's son, very highly talented individual and has given concerts uh, here in Hamilton. And uh, actually, uh, Marvin invited uh, my wife and I to see one of the concerts um, oh, a year or so ago that we gladly went to. And, uh, and of course, um, Ben, although from Hamilton, lives out in the East Coast. So there are many sides to, to Marvin Kaplan, uh, and, and his politics was just one of them. One of the things I'll always remember about Marvin, the the, the politician, uh, was he was very principled, as we've talked about, but but very very quick to defend his position. I mean, politicians oftentimes, Larry, at all levels of government, uh, are often accused, and and maybe with some justification with some of them, of bending with the wind. You know, let's what's well, you know, let's see where the public is on this, and that's where the stand I'll take. Marvin took a stand and was quite happy to defend his stance. I mean, as I say, I sat in the office beside his for three years, and uh, and I heard some of those phone calls because of those thin walls that we talked about. And uh, he would he would get into discussions, debate with constituents, with other counselors, with with staff members, uh, and and stick to his guns about these issues. And he wasn't one of these guys that said, you know, listen, I'll say whatever it takes as long as you put a lawn sign on my election next time. Uh, and one of the issues that that comes forth to mind like that was was the expressway debate, which was still red hot back in those days. And it was, uh, if I recall, it was not uh, it was not fashionable for the uh, usually for the residents of Ward One or for the councilors, especially of Ward One, to be supportive of that expressway. But Marvin was well, Terry Cook was before he was, but but uh, when he took Terry's position, he maintained his support for the expressway. Uh, much to the chagrin of an awful lot of people in the west end of the city, but he just looked at it and said, I've done the homework on this. This is the way I think the city needs to go, and stuck by his guns. Absolutely. I mean, he, 
uh, Marvin was unabashed about his political philosophy, and I think it's fair to say that it was center-left, uh, and and uh, he championed uh, all of the causes that the progressives would be happy with. Uh, but he analyzed the Red Hill uh, uh, Parkway uh, uh, debate, and he said, "This if, if I believe, and I remember him saying this to me, if I believe that we need to create wealth and distribute that wealth and provide programs for the most marginalized in this community, then I've got to believe in programs that will help us do that. And this particular program, the roadway, will absolutely generate the sorts of dollars that will then help us build the parks and provide social services and so on. And and stuck to those guns, even though it wasn't popular among some of the academics and Ivy Leaguers in the West End, uh, who to this day still rail against that project that has year after year now, since its inception, proved Marvin to be correct. So I don't know if I agree with Dan Nolan uh, in The Spectator this morning that that led to uh, uh, perhaps his defeat at the polls. Uh, times are changing. There are a number of issues uh, that, that have to be dealt with, and maybe this was one of them. But he held fast to that ideal, that's for sure. One issue, if, if there's one thing we could say, okay, what's what's the legacy issue for, for Marvin Kaplan? Uh, and the thing that sticks out for me, and it was something that I worked on with him, uh, that we struck a subcommittee at council, if you recall, Larry. It was myself and Andrea Horvath and Marvin. And it had to do with what they called second-level lodging homes. In other words, accommodation mm-hmm. for, for those that are, are vulnerable and are having mental health issues uh, in a lot of ways. And it was a shambles. I mean, and just a, a terrible mess. It wasn't being looked after very well. And and the work that, uh, well, I, I like to think all three of us put into that subcommittee uh, to really reshape that whole process, and, and I think much to the benefit of an awful lot of vulnerable people in the city. Uh, you've got Marvin was the chair of that, that subcommittee, along with me and Andrea Horvath, and uh, it, it's, it's something that stuck with me, and certainly every time I, I see these, these facilities and I see these people that use these facilities, uh, I can't help but think of the work that Marvin and, and others put into that to make that work. Absolutely. And I recall when I came into the Amalgamated City, of course, having spent some time in the lower tier where we didn't have responsibility for these homes uh, at that level. I didn't know what a second level lodging home was. I thought it was simply the second floor of an ordinary uh, residence. Uh, And it was Marvin who took me by the hand and educated me about that. And I recall he encouraged me to go and visit some, which I did. I I got in touch with some of the city staff, and they took me to a number of these facilities, and it was a real eye-opener for me. And Marvin felt the passion about helping people. And again, here are people who are not voters. They're marginalized uh, in many cases. They, they need, well, obviously they need uh, a greater assistance than most people. And yet Marvin felt that it was the right thing to do, the socially just thing to do uh, to assist them. And he, along with you and Andrea, helped shape the uh, the policy on those, which uh, I think is a great legacy for him. He uh, certainly left his mark on the community, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think, I mean, you know, set aside the the controversy of the day or or the, um, you know, the, the, the fact that there were some councillors that disagreed with him and he disagreed with them. I don't think anybody could walk away after meeting Marvin Kaplan and forget who he was. Absolutely memorable individual and will be missed in this country. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Former jurors on some high-profile cases that we've had here in Hamilton and other parts of uh, the country over the last little while have uh, come forward now and uh, talked about being traumatized by graphic court evidence that uh, is presented in some of those trials. And... uh, there are, before now, the only way that this was ever dealt with was that the judge at the trial could order that there would be assistance for them. Well, not everybody came forward. Not every judge did that. So there was some problem about the impact that this was having on people that are doing their civic duty. Well, that was dealt with yesterday when Ontario's Attorney General Yasser Nakvi uh, came to the Johnson Pickett Courthouse here in downtown Hamilton and made this announcement. Well, so Hamilton has uh, seen some difficult uh, cases that go through. Bosma trial is is uh, is a very good example. So we felt that it was uh, appropriate to come to Hamilton uh, to talk about this to make sure that jurors who were involved uh, in that trial uh, knows uh, about the program and if they need access to it, are able to access this program. 
It's called the Jury Support Program, and it will help as many people as possible, regardless of how much time has passed after they've served on a jury. Some are questioning whether this is even necessary. Well, let's talk to Theo Sellis about that, registered family therapist and, of course, president of Integrity Works. He joins us here on 900 CHML. Theo, good morning. How are you today? I'm terrible, Bill. I got this wicked cold going on, so I got this sexy, deep voice. Yeah, you're, you know, you're about kinda, two octaves lower than usual. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah, I'm going to keep this voice. <laughs> you sound really professional, I think, too. Sure, sure. This is this is a great radio voice for you. <laughs> uh, listen, let, I want to talk about, about trauma and, and dealing with this. And, and we've talked yeah. about PTSD in, in, in light of uh, people that have served in the armed forces, for instance, maybe have been over in Afghanistan or in Bosnia years ago, whatever the case may have been and the impact that it can have both short-term and long-term. Uh, talk to us about people that actually go and sit on a jury like this and the impact that this, this has on, on them. I mean, I, th- I think this cut an awful lot of people off guard that this can have such a traumatic and dramatic effect on people. Yeah, you know, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting development. And like many uh, well-intended develop- developments, it can, uh, it can actually do some really good. And, and interesting enough, from my perspective, it can also create some harm, too, if it's not done properly. Um, so, you know, the whole idea is how do people encounter different things that they deal with in such a way that they're able to deal with those things and then not have those particular experiences impact their lives negatively. In other words, can they go through an experience whether they actually deal with the situation themselves or by listening to someone else describe it, uh, start experiencing some of that sort of vicariously? Can they go through that without disrupting their own well-being, being able to disrupt their own mental health, their own uh, relationships? Uh, are, they, are, are they going to be okay themselves after uh, either experiencing something directly or hearing someone else talk about uh, a, a difficult experience? So. Uh, there's some pros and cons about this, and we can certainly get into that. Well, let, let's talk about some of the, the, the cons. I'm, I'm in, intrigued by your comment that actually this, this treatment might actually have an adverse effect. How so? Yeah, so on, on the quick side, I mean, it's nice to have the option. I think it's great. Jurors get absolutely nothing, or minimally nothing, for going through what they go through in terms of, like, you know, any kind of compensation. I think you don't get anything for a little while and then maybe $40 a day or whatever. So it's a hardship that we're imposing on people in response to their civic duty. And so I think it's great for them to have the option of getting help. The possible harm that could happen is how we come to think of events anyway. So you'll hear people talk a lot about traumatic events, right? And so I do a lot of um, crisis intervention and trauma debriefing and received a lot of training. And so uh, the interesting thing is, is that... There have been a number of research, a number of research showing that how you present this kind of topic to people will impact a lot about whether or not they're going to feel traumatized. So they, uh, in the 90s especially, everyone needed to have some trauma debriefer coming into their workplace if something happened in their work, you know, like someone got shot or committed suicide or some mm-hmm. quote-unquote traumatic event. The idea that if you didn't bring someone in there, all kinds of employees would have PTSD and, you know, it would be terrible and you have to make sure that people are okay. So you're doing this proactive thing and everyone... You know, every company sort of were falling over each other, making sure that they took care of their employees. And then the research started coming out and saying, like, so is this really effective? Is, is all this trauma debriefing actually helping people prevent, or preventing people from being traumatized by these things? And what they found was often, more often than not, the people who were, had the models coming in, the people coming into the trauma debriefing, more often than not, those employees ended up having more traumatic experiences, more PTSD than oftentimes when there was no intervention at all. And so people go, well, what, you know, that's not something that looks really good on your brochure when you're selling your services. Like, what, how do you explain that? Well, yeah, I mean, it seems incongruous because you figure, hey, right. well, you're getting help. help. Help should be some right. assistance, shouldn't it? So there's two things that have come out of the research. One is, um, one is when you force people to do something that they're not really feeling comfortable with, because not everyone has to deal with things by talking about things and kind of working in chemistry. We all have our different ways of dealing with things. Uh, when you force them to do things, because, you know, you have to sit around in this group of people and you have to talk about your feelings, that in itself may end up bringing up issues for people that they ordinarily wouldn't have had. But the second most important thing that they found was the expectancy that there was going to be trauma. It's people are very suggestible. So if you say, this is a traumatic event, and you're in danger of getting post-traumatic stress disorder. And if you don't do these things, if you don't talk about it in this particular way and get those kind of support, look at all the symptoms that you might end up getting. People started having those symptoms because they expected they must because they experienced a quote-unquote traumatic event. So it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy then. That is correct. And so the important thing, important thing here would be to really, uh, when you're having, 
when you're going into a, if you're going to be a juror and you're going to be called into these situations, what would be more useful is uh, some information prior to this, letting you know how to deal with these things rather than after the fact. So it would be more useful for them to hear a message saying, look, <clears throat> by and large, most people will be completely fine. Most people don't need counseling. Most people will be okay. And it's not the event that's going to determine whether or not you're going to be traumatized. Because if it was the event, if quote-unquote the event was traumatic, then everyone who encountered it would be traumatized. But we know that some people will encounter that event and not have trauma, and some people will encounter that and have trauma. If it was the event, everyone would. So it's not the event per se. It's how you go about making sense of it, how you think about it, how you go about getting support for it if you need to. It's how you deal with it that's going to determine whether or not you're going to get some sort of post-traumatic uh, effect afterwards. So stop putting so much emphasis on the event being traumatic. Say, look, it's a challenging event. There's no doubt about it. But here's how you go about thinking about these things. Here's how you go about making sure that you don't take it on yourself. Here's how you go about processing it in a way that's healthy. Then you're going to be just fine. That would be more effective, actually. That would do a lot more good than saying, look, this is, you know, the Bosman trial. That's a traumatic event. You're in danger of having post-traumatic stress disorder. You have counseling available to you. It's free of charge. It's a good thing that you use it because this is a traumatic event. That in itself may end up creating more trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, than if you didn't have it in the first place. This is the way that uh, in the past conversations we've had, I think a lot of people view this, though, Theo, is, is they'll look at a courtroom situation, a courtroom scenario, and the judge has more than likely heard cases like this before. The Crown and the, and the defense more than likely have, 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 if they've been in criminal law, they've had some exposure to this. Certainly the police and first responders have as well. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you look at those jurors, and, and, and by the way, especially when it comes to the first responders, I mean, there's some sense of, of training as they embark on that career to, to be able to deal with this sort of stuff. I mean, I, I've, I've got friends, and I know you do too, that are, are, are police, firefighters, and, 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 and actually, uh, you know, advanced care paramedics. And I, and I marveled. I said, how do you do your job? I mean, the stuff that you see on a daily basis. And, and by the way, we know that they, some of them are adversely affected by this too. Yes. But jurors are you, me, uh, you know, yeah. ev just average people probably don't have any exposure to this stuff on, right. a, on a basis, no training in how to deal with this. How do you deal with that problem? In, in yeah, other words, they, they seem to be the ones that are most vulnerable in, in that courtroom scenario. Right. And that's where that educative piece really comes in handy, right? So uh, as far as the first responders, my issue is that they oftentimes actually don't have that kind of training. And they do the usual suck it up macho kind of thing until, like, it all builds up for them. And then they end up with all these issues, you know, that they end up seeing me for. And so I, I, I think first responders need way more training in terms of being able to help themselves deal with situations that they end up dealing with. Um, but for sure, uh, jurors who don't have any or very little experience of this need to have some education. And it also speaks to whether or not some people should be serving on that jury in the first place. So there are ways now, for instance, you can say, um, like if you had a medical condition that would interfere, you wouldn't have to serve as a, juror, uh, as a juror. And if there is some sort of, you know, financial hardship kind of thing, uh, you can make an application for that and maybe you won't have to uh, be a juror. But what this brings up is, is do you have some issues in your past that have not been resolved, some psychological issues in your past that haven't been resolved, that will come up now for you and be triggered for you if you're going to be ending up serving as a juror. And so maybe we also need to incorporate that now into the screening process uh, for people and give them the option of saying, you know what, some of the things that might be coming up in this trial may actually remind me of some particular abuse or rape or assault or loss or whatever, you know, frightening, terrifying kind of experience that I haven't really kind of worked through. And maybe it's important for me to be able to work through these things rather than go into this situation where that's all brought up for me. And then I have to go get counseling for it. So maybe this is an opportunity for us to do some more prevention uh, where we actually deal with our things to make sure that we aren't going to be harmed by going through a process and, you know, fulfilling our civic duty. <clears throat> So, so that's the preparation element, and I get that. And and since uh, the minister, uh, Minister Nagvi, referenced the Bosma trial, and, and we've done it a couple of times, let's let's carry on on that theme. One one of the more astonishing moments, I guess, of that trial. And I remember having the conversation with our, our Alex Pearson, who was covering the trial for us. 
here at CHML, uh, was when they showed the video of, of, of what was going on at that uh, the hangar, of course, uh, and yeah. and then you saw the you know the the Terminator, the great big uh, incinerator, light up, and you knew darn well what yeah. it was doing. And, yeah. and Alex told us at the time there was almost a, a sudden, just a gasp in the courthouse, but <laughs> in everybody, you know, think, oh my God, uh, that you you can't prepare yourself for that. I mean, you you probably know what the video is going to say, but you, until you see it, it's the same way when we see something unexpected in a movie. And I'm not trying to, you know, belittle what happened in the courtroom there by by, by drawing that art versus reality situation. But we get shocked, we get shocked, we get scared. That's got to have an impact on us, uh, no matter how much you get prepared. Well, um, so let's, let's put it this way. It's going to have some sort of impact, but how much of an impact and how much you take in on yourself, how much you carry around with you afterwards may have, um, may depend a lot on the kind of preparation that you do. And that's, you know, that's the reason why, um, for me, in terms of the training that I have done with my job is, you know, I hear a lot of horrific stories. How do I go about listening to that, caring, having empathy, at the same time not taking it on myself and having that impact my life so that I'm now thinking about that, obsessing about that, having images re-going through my mind about these different things I'm encountering through my clients. That's kind of the training that we, every professional who deals with this kind of stuff on an ongoing basis needs to have in order to do their job. It's not just about how to help other people. It's about being able to make sure that you help yourself so that you can do your job well without suffering from it. And that's part of the... Part of the, you know, we can give, put it together like a little mini course for uh, would-be jurors who are going to deal with something that we know ahead of time is going to have these kind of particular experiences. We, you know, we could build that in. You know, you, I, if I had like an hour with a juror who was going through this, I might be able to give them some tips about how to be there to hear the information, to imagine it to a certain degree, but to think about it in a particular way that doesn't end up leading them to dwell on it. And I would talk a lot, a lot with them about you know, just understanding a lot about um, their own kind of emotions and how they how they deal with their own feelings and how to regulate their own feelings. A lot of people talk, for instance, about, you know, how things make them feel. You'll hear that language, right, Bill? You'll say, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, they piss me off, they make me mad. You know, that's oh, making sure, me yeah. feel, right? And if you have, and that's one way of screening people out for this. If you If you think a lot and talk a lot about how people make you feel things, you sort of got this way of understanding the world and things around you that it's external things that determine how you feel. And you're much more likely to end up, quote-unquote, being traumatized by a, an event than people who understand that there are events, there are things that people do. But it's how you think about them, the way you make sense of them, that's going to determine how you feel. Ultimately, your feelings come through how you think about things, not directly from the environment to you. And that kind of cognitive behavioral kind of training can really help buffer a person to be able to understand how to think about it in such a way that they're less likely to be emotionally impacted by it. How do you? How, how does this process unfold? I, I got a, a few minutes left here. Uh, if, if somebody walks through the door and says, "Yeah, you know this this program, the province just instituted. I served on a jury. I, blah blah blah. Whenever it was, and, and I'm I'm adversely affected. I feel as if I've gone through a traumatic situation here." Is there a one-size-fits-all formula that you follow here, Theo, or does it depend on the individual? Does it depend on what they saw? How do you, how do you approach something like that? And at the same time, how do you balance that, that that you have to have empathy? And I know you, I've known you for a long time, and you do have that. But at the same time, you can't internalize what's going on with them either, can you? Yeah, and so that's two questions. How do you deal with it yeah. when they come to counseling? And the other one, how does it make sure that you're not impacted? I mean, the the first question, you know, what if someone comes in and they say, look, I've served in jury duty and I'm impacted, I need to help. I mean, there's no way of being able to say whether or not they do or not or why they need it. I mean, it's, they're now saying that they need help and you've opened up that door. And so you're going to have to help them kind of make sense of it and see how it's impacted their lives and how they can kind of move forward and no longer have it be something that's so central to them. But the second part of it is really about what does it mean to encounter events, to care to do the best that you can, but to not take it on yourself. I mean, you know, you think about my job, all the stories I hear again. I have to understand, of course, it's something that happens to other people with other people. It's a lot of pain. I can empathize with them and care for them. But I have this kind of a barrier, a bit of a wall, a bit of a protection, where I say, this is what has happened to somebody else. It's not happening to me. This is their life, not my life. And I have been trained and trained myself to think about things in a particular way that leads me to be ultimately responsible for my own feelings. I understand it's not the event that's going to determine how I feel about something. I'm not going to give the power to the event by calling it a traumatic event. 
I'm going to think about events as being challenges to me, and then I'm going to think about those things and get certain support and make sense of them in such a way that I'm going to be emotionally okay. And that comes from some training and a way of thinking about things that most people tend not to have. And that's why uh, we need to have that in place. If we're going to have jurors and we're going to say, yes, they're going to be dealing with difficult things, difficult challenges, we need to teach them a little bit about how to deal with those rather than after the fact and say, okay, now you've been traumatized, now let's get some help. Because I can tell you that once it's happened, it can take a long time to get back on track where it's one of those things like, uh, you know, an hour or two of education can prevent, like, long periods of therapy and damage to a person's life. So is one of the goals then that you want the, the individual to adopt the same sort of attitude that you've adopted? Well, uh, attitude, a way of thinking about things, to think about things in a particular way that give you more power about your own emotions when you encounter difficult challenges. And, uh, and, that, and that is something that we know that people do because, if again, people didn't do that, everyone would be affected the same way by an event. But you know that's not true. Everyone has these different experiences. Not everyone ends up with post-traumatic stress disorder. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of people don't have post-traumatic stress disorder. So what we've started to do is look at, you know, let's learn about what people who are resilient are doing. What are the kind of ways that they think about it? How do they make sense of it? What kind of things are going on in their own lives that keep them strong and buffered so that these things don't end up impacting them this way? Let's learn from what they're doing, and then let's teach those skills to people in general. And that's kind of more recent development. It's more of a proactive and positive, positive approach rather than just focusing on people who have been already harmed. So it, it, it sounds complex, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's really saying, look at you know, what happens from time to time, uh, you know, I'll you fill in the blank of what, what word you want to use there. Uh, but at the same time, you can't let it dominate you. And, and that, it's easier said than done for some people, but it's, it must be a, a rather long exercise to get them to see that and get them to internalize that. You know, it's actually not that really that long because it really does make sense. When I teach my, my students this, it kind of makes sense to them pretty quickly. It takes like a class kind of thing where they kind of get it, right? You know, a lot of it is language. When we really, when we think of events as being traumatic, and I, saw, I tell them, like, I don't want you to be thinking of events as traumatic events, because that implies that inevitably there's trauma involved for you. It's a traumatic event, so now all of a sudden you're going to be more likely to be traumatized. Again, think of events as challenging events. Not everyone's going to get traumatized. Most people aren't. So your expectation is that you will be well, and these are the kind of ways that you will approach it that will help you be well. These are the kind of things that are associated with resiliency and strength. That'll teach you how to deal with these things so you don't automatically think that you're going to be traumatized because the event is traumatizing. It's just an event. It's challenging, no doubt. Some events are more challenging than others. But there's ways that you can go about thinking about things, understanding that you're ultimately responsible for how you will feel. That we can teach you. And that's not actually that difficult. That doesn't take that long. It's a different way of thinking. We're just we're so used to looking at the external events around us as being responsible for our feelings, it's built into our language about how things make us feel. But things don't make us feel things. We can learn emotional self-regulation, and then if we have that skill, then we can encounter different events, and we're much less likely to end up having this trauma after experiencing them. Theo Sellis from Integrity Works. Thanks as always, Theo. Great to get your insight into this. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.